All right, we'll let our children be dismissed for their time with the Gospel Project. Thankful for our uh, faithful servants that uh, help that uh, ministry each week. Grateful for their time together in the Word of God. Uh, welcome, church family. It's good to see you this morning. My name is Sean. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, Steve uh, Hafler, our lead pastor, sends his greetings. He is out traveling uh, to visit his uh, daughter. And uh, actually, he would say his grandbaby. That's the reason that he's out visiting. And uh, so he sends his greetings while he's away from us. If you're a guest, I hope that you have found your heart encouraged by the truths that we've sung together this morning. You all have kind of preached a little kind of mini-sermon to each other in the words of these songs. And I hope that your heart uh, is encouraged to know that here you are gathering with others who confess faith in Christ, who have their hopes set upon God uh, for, all, for all of our eternity. Take your Bibles and find your way to Romans chapter 1. And I just want to encourage us to uh, be people who have a Bible with them uh, for Sunday. Uh, that can be an electronic Bible. And that's, that still counts as a Bible. But I want to encourage us to uh, have the habit of looking into the Word of God for yourselves uh, as we study God's Word together. I know many of you do that. just want to kind of encourage you in that, praise you for doing that. Uh, if you don't have an electronic Bible, there's a Bible in the seat back pocket in front of you. You can find your way to Romans 1 and there. If you don't own a Bible, we'd be glad for you to take that with you. It'd be our gift to you. Uh, but find your way to Romans chapter 1 this morning. It was April 13, 1970. The Apollo 13 mission was on day three. Some of you remember this. I do not. <laughs> mission control in Houston had just asked the crew of the Apollo 13 to stir the cryotanks when the crew heard a loud bang. And the mission transcript reads as follows. Mission control. We've got one more item for you. When you get a chance, we'd like you to stir up your cryotanks. Swigger, okay, stand by. Okay, Houston. There's a pause. Eight seconds later, Swigert says, we have a problem here. Mission Control, this is Houston. Say again, please. We've had a hardware restart. I don't know what it is. Okay, GNC, you want to take a look at it, see if you see any problems? And then Lovell and uh, Apollo 13, there's a garbled response. And then he says, ah, Houston, we've had a problem. Those words kind of have been indelibly marked as uh, signifying a major issue, a big dilemma, a problem. And of course, what we've discovered is an explosion had occurred in the Apollo 13 crew and NASA had to overcome a number of serious obstacles to get back home. First, they had to improvise and construct a carbon dioxide filter. And then second, they had to operate and return their spacecraft with very little electrical power and the country was captivated by the plight of these astronauts and the efforts to get them back home. Well, in our sermon series, we have been looking at the big story of the Bible, and we've been spending time in Genesis looking at our problem, a different kind of problem, not an explosion in our spacecraft, but an explosion of sin into our world, into us as a human race that devastated our relationship with one, with one another and our relationship with God. So the question then is, how are we going to solve this problem of sin and evil? What are we going to do about it? Well, the Bible answers that question in Romans and tells us about what God has done to solve the problem of evil and sin in our lives and in the world around us. And so over the next few weeks, we've been moved, we're going to move from Genesis. Now we're going to find our way into Romans. 
We're going to spend a few weeks together in Romans 1 to 4 to look at and spend time to understand what has God done about this problem. You see, the Bible is one big story. It's not a bunch of little moral lessons for you to kind of store away to get ahead in life. The Bible is one big story about what God has done, the problem of our sin, what God has done, and how he's going to make all things right in the end. And so that's why I've had you find your way to Romans 1, because everything God has done about the devastation and problem of sin can be found in what is called the gospel. The gospel. Now, I know that term is familiar to many of us in here this morning. And in Romans 1, 16 to 17, you find the gospel in a nutshell. In fact, if you don't, you might want to highlight those verses or mark them somehow, because in those two verses, you basically have a thesis statement of what the Christian gospel is. And so what I hope to do in this sermon this morning is introduce us to what God has done about our problem of sin, our problem of evil. And I want us to meditate and reflect on the Christian gospel today. And we're going to start with the basics because that's where Paul starts in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 1. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? Uh, By the way, there are handouts. If you have a sermon handout, uh, again, I know we have a different, different relationships with handouts. Some of you are glad, some of you are ambivalent, some of you are stressed because you don't want to miss blanks. Um, but the gospel is good news. That's your first blank. The gospel is good news. The word gospel is repeated four times in Romans 1, and it's an important concept for the Apostle Paul. Many of you are familiar with the word, but the word gospel is the Greek word transliterated evangelion. And it's two-part word, which means good, you, and then angelion, which is news. And interestingly, the word angelos is actually the word that's mostly ordinarily translated in our Bibles as angel. Okay? So you might be a little confused and say, how does this work? We're talking about good angels? What is this thing? Well, actually, don't think of winged creatures flying in the sky, okay? But think about what angels do. When you think about it, angels in the Bible were messengers. That's why they're called that. That's why we call them angels, because they were messengers. It wasn't describing their form or that they have wings or you know, whatever else comes to mind when you think of angels, but it was describing their role, their function, what they did. And if you think about it, that's what you did. Just think about the story of Jesus' birth. And in that story, in that account, you have angels, you have messengers that are giving messages to Zechariah, to Mary, to the shepherds, They're announcing, they're heralding something. That's why they're called angelos. That's what they are. They're messengers. They're heralds. And that's how it was done for most of world history. In fact, news was spread and shared for most of world history through messengers, through angels, okay? I know some of you are thinking that uh, news reporters are not angels and news journalists are not angels. I get it. So I understand that, okay? But for the most of world history, there was no radio. There was no television. There was no photography, no internet, right? I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands of world history, news was spread, news was was shared. How did that happen? It happened through the great historic events got distributed by means of messengers or heralds. These angelos or these angels would announce the news for everyone to hear. And that's what gets us to the heart of what's happening here in the gospel. The gospel is good news. And here's how I've heard it put. The essence of the Christian message is news. It's good, joyful news. And that sets Christianity apart from every other major world religion. 
You see, world religion and philosophy, they say if you really want to enjoy endless paradise, if you want to meet God and enjoy him forever, you must do this and do this and do this and do this. They give you steps to follow, a path to walk, things to achieve and do. Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, secularism, they all teach that you must do something, these steps, this path, this process to achieve paradise or transcendence or this next level of existence, whatever that religion or philosophy may teach. But when we talk like that, we're not announcing good news. What we're doing then is giving good advice. And that's that other blank there on your handout. The gospel is not good advice. This is so helpful. This is how I heard it taught and it just kind of sticks with me. The gospel is good news. It is not good advice. It's not something, the gospel is not primarily about something that you must do. The gospel is an announcement of something that God has done for you. Do you believe that? Do you really? Think about it like this. If someone were to ask you, what is Christianity? Summarize it. How would you summarize it? How would you describe it? Many people think of Christianity as a moral code to live by, a set of ethics that they must conform their life around, ethical obligations, and often is perceived as a bunch of restrictions. Something of Christianity is trying to obey the teachings of Jesus, so maybe they'll summarize it and say, well, you just need to love others, love your neighbor as yourself, try to do more good in your life than bad in your life, and hopefully in the end it'll all work out. That's often what people, how do they summarize Christianity? Of course, doing good is a good thing, right? But that's not the heart of Christianity because it can't be because you doing things is not news. News is about something that has been done already. News is something that has happened out there. Like if there's a, there's a breaking news report, right? That's something that's just happening right now, but it's happening out there. Christianity is something that has happened outside of you and it's so momentous and so astonishing that when you embrace it and believe it and treasure this news for yourself, it gives you such life-changing joy that you will start doing good to others. It changes who you are. It starts to reorder your life and your affections and your choices and your decisions as a result of this news of what God has done for you taking control of who you are. And I know it may seem overly basic to many of us, but I can't stress how important it is for us to have this bedrock understanding about, okay, what's wrong in the world, sin and evil, now what's right? And what, what is God going to do to make it right? It's something God has done, not you. Not you. You see, we in our world are all wrecked and ruined by sin, but God has done something about that. That's the message of Christianity. So if you come in here this morning and you're thinking Christianity is kind of this path for you to to do and to live and to obey and to kind of endure underneath these obligations. And it's, here you are at church again, marking that off so you're a good person and you kind of get rid of your guilt, friend. That is not Christianity. That is not. When you embrace Christianity as news about what God has done for you, it exerts a paradigm-shifting kind of power in your life. And we'll talk about that power as we get to a close. But test yourself. What do you believe about Christianity? Whatever you, what do you believe about God and Christianity and is what you believe about it, how you would describe it, is, is your description mainly about you and what you must do or is it mainly about what God has done? Which is it for you? 
Test yourself. You see, you really haven't truly understood or had the gospel kind of had its, its breakthrough in your conscience, in your reality, until you understand that the gospel is news about what God has done. It's not advice about what you must do. This is why Jesus could say, come to me, all you who are, you who are weary and laden down with burden. Right? Come to me. Because I will give you, what did Jesus say? Rest. And if you're thinking Christianity, man, it doesn't seem like rest. It seems like do, 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 and don't do this, and got to do this, and can't do this, and deny this, and man, just got to kind of suffer. And Friends, you've lost sight of what the gospel is. It is a joyful announcement of something amazing that God has done for you. So, what has God done then? <laughs> what is this news that is so joyful, you say, that Paul talks about in Romans 1, in verses 16 and 17, when he says it's the, he's not ashamed of this gospel, it is the power of God for salvation. What is it? Well, as you read here in verses 16 and 17, he says this, for in it, what is it, verse 17, for in the gospel, here is what is contained inside the gospel, verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed, it's shown, it's displayed, from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous or the justified shall live by faith. So what is the good news? Well, the good news is God's righteousness, here's another blank, is God's righteousness given to sinners or God's justification given to sinners. Those words can be interchangeable. And again, for many of us, these verses are very familiar. And so we blow right past them. We're like, yeah, we've seen that road sign about the gospel hundreds of times and we just blow right by it. And we don't stop and consider how astonishing it is what God is teaching us here. In Romans, in this book, the Greek word for righteous and righteousness or justify, justified, those derivatives, you get that? That's the same root word, by the way. Okay? Justified, justified, righteous, righteousness, same root word. It is used over 50 times in the book of Romans. That's a lot, okay? Okay? Now, it's central to what God has done about our problem of sin. So we need to understand what is happening here in that term. What is God talking about? What does it mean to be righteous? What does it mean to be justified? Okay? I know, this is kind of, we're talking like Christianese type of things, but not really, because this is something that has power and function in our own lives in a non-religious kind of, well, when I say non-religious, in a non, yeah, non-religious kind of way. Think about it. Whenever we talk about being justified, or justifying something, you're talking about changing your relationship towards something, your perspective towards something. So here's the analogy that I, I heard. It. Here's an illustration the way I, put, the way I heard it. If, you are having a, if I'm having a conversation with you and you're talking to me and you're telling me something and you're trying to convince me of something and I'm listening but I'm just a little skeptical and you can see, you know, when we get skeptical or I squint, why, I don't know, but that just happens. And I'm looking at you and I say, hmm, justify what you just said. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I'm not saying I want you to change what you said. No. I'm saying, I, I'm admitting I'm having a hard time believing it and accepting it, and I need your help. I need you to justify it. I need you to convince me to accept it. To justify your statement would be to give some sort of proof or evidence that would change my relationship to what you were saying from skepticism and rejection to belief and acceptance. You get that? Justify it. And that's what's going on in the gospel. 
The news about God's righteousness for sinners, the central message is that people are justified. Their relationship with God is reorientated so that it's not, a, not rejection and skepticism, but now it's acceptance and, and belonging. And that's why in Romans 5.1, it was read for us before we sang. In Romans 5.1, it says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And what's the result? We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So what we learn here is that we can stand in the presence of a great God. You can stand in the presence of God, right? You, have, you can be justified to do that. You might say, well, I have no business being in the throne room of God. I have no business having any audience with God. Somebody evil like me? Somebody who has thoughts like that, anger like that, jealousy like that, lies like that. You say, I have no, I have no grounds to do that. I, I'm not justified to be there. Something has to justify me to be present in God, with God. But here's what we have. The gospel is the announcement of what God has done to change your relationship with Him so that you can, in spite of everything wrong with you, in spite of all of your crimes of evil against God, and other humans, you can be justified. He will accept you. And that's only possible because what Jesus has done. He has done something to change God's regard for the sinner who holds up the empty hands of faith to receive what God has done. And that ties into the idea of why this is called good news. You see, something has been done. God has done this. He justifies sinners. Sinners don't justify themselves. God the Father looks at us, loves us, and then delights in us because of what he has done. So, what then, according to the gospel news, has happened so that God's relationship changes towards us? What's going on here? Well, a lot of people say, well, our sins are forgiven, and that is true. Your evil, your acts of evil against God, your defiance against his rule and reign, has been forgiven. And that's wonderful, that's marvelous, that's, that's, that's tremendous, Right? But there's more than that. Something else happens. The Christian gospel is news about forgiveness, but it's news about God giving to us the standing of being acceptable by Him, accepted by Him, so that you can be received into His audience. You can be received into relationship with God. So think of it this way, in like an analogy with, with a debt being paid. All right? You got money you owe someone? Well, imagine that debt was paid in full. Done. You look at your account, the balance that's been negative for all this time, right? This burden that's been hanging over you, this obligation. And suddenly you look at it and it says zero dollars owed. That is amazing. You would celebrate, you'd be thankful, you'd, you'd rejoice, this is great. But the problem is, is maybe your bank account's now at zero, which is better than being at negative, but you're still at a zero, You see, in the gospel, God gives us money to live on in relationship with him. In the gospel, it doesn't say that, hey, we're going to get rid of your debt of evil against God, and now, okay, good luck. Now you've got to do this on your own. Now figure it out. Now maintain that relationship with God. Here you go. Good luck. You can do this, I hope. Try harder. Work, Work diligently. No, 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 no. The gospel is not that. The gospel is God's righteousness given to sinners. And you say, well, that sounds too good to be true. Well, if that's your response, then you're kind of getting an appreciation for what the good news is. It is almost too good to be true. But it's not, because God did it. 
And I can prove it to you that it's not too good to be true because Paul the Apostle writes about this to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In verse 21 it says this, For our sake he made him, God made Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Jesus, in him, we might become the righteousness, there's our word from Romans, the righteousness of God. You would become the justified, the justification of God in Jesus. What does that mean? He made him to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Does that mean that Jesus became sinful? Does that mean that Jesus, in his person, in his heart, became greedy and angry and violent and lustful and fill-in-the-blank with evil and sin? No. It can't mean that because of what the Bible tells us about the perfection of Jesus. And also, while Jesus was dying on the cross, accomplishing forgiveness for sin, he was forgiving his executioners, right? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And a sinner can't absolve the debt of another sinner. It can't happen. What this verse means is that Jesus was treated as our sins deserve. He was given the treatment that our evil record deserved. Now, notice this. It says that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So there's another side of this as well. It's not just that our, that our, our record was put on Jesus, but it says that in him we become God's righteousness, which means that in him we are treated as Jesus' perfect life deserves. So think of it this way. The gospel is your sinful record being hung around the neck of Jesus and Jesus' perfect record being hung around your neck. Now that may still be a little abstract, so think of it this way. Imagine you are in the Olympics of life, the Olympic Games of life, okay? And not like sporting Olympics. None of us are good enough to do any of that, right? Um, But just imagine the Olympics of life. Gold medal means you get into heaven, right? You're perfect. You're sinless. You've never committed evil, never had a thought towards evil, never had a desire of evil. Gold medal for you if that describes you. Now, all of us are doomed, aren't we? Right? Okay, if you don't think you're doomed, there's there's an extra class afterwards that we can talk about, right? I mean, just think about this, right? So what happens is Jesus won the gold medal. He did it. He won the gold medal of life. He never had an evil thought or an evil, t- an evil desire, nor did he act in any of that. Sinless perfection, Jesus. His entire life. Never once did he waver from that, even though he was tempted by the devil directly. Never once did he waver from, his, from who he is as the, son, as the God-man. And then there's us. We get the black metal of evil, right? It's like not bronze, right? It's kind of like down in the basement. That's what's hung around our neck. Evil. There's no anthem being played there, or it is. I don't know what it is, right? There's no crowd cheering. So what happens is, in the gospel, what God has done is he takes the metal off of Jesus' neck and he puts it on our neck. And he takes the black metal of evil and sin around our neck and puts it on Jesus' neck. That's what happens in the gospel. That's what's going on when it says that God has given sinners his righteousness. 
This is what we have been given. This is why the gospel news about what God has done. You can't do this. God has to do it. This is why God then delights in you as a sinner who's received this by faith. You have this inexhaustible bank account now on which to live in a relationship with God. This bank account, not that you have merited or you have earned or you have, you have purchased or you have accrued. Not at all. It's entirely, you're, you're, you're dipping in and withdrawing money out of that bank account on Jesus' account, on what he has done. You are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, a gift from God, received with the empty hands of faith. That's the Christian gospel. That's what God has done about this problem of sin. And you say, okay, I understand that doctrine. I've heard it before. And if you haven't heard that before, I'm glad you're hearing it because this is why we sing together as a church. This is why we gather together. This is why we have reason to rejoice and we have hope in a world that is broken by sin because God has done something. You say, well, okay, I know this doctrine, so, so what? I mean, what is it, how is it supposed to help me this week with the problems in my life and who I am and what I'm doing? Well, this has enormous ramifications for us. Think about it this way. All of us, without exception, are naturally prone to try to justify ourselves, aren't we? We are. Every one of us. None of us escape this. This is a human condition. Right? And it hap- by the way, we saw it happen in Genesis. I mean, Adam and Eve in the garden, paradise. Oh, it's wonderful. They're with God. Fruit, trees. It's glorious, right? Sin. Everything changes. What happens immediately when sin enters their life, this world? They start throwing each other under the bus. I know there was no bus, but you get the idea, right? What do they start doing? They start justifying themselves to God when God asks them questions, right? Remember that? And they each do it. Adam... It's Eve's fault. Eve, it's your fault, God, because of the devil. And and Adam says, God, it's your fault because you gave me this woman. And and they just keep justifying themselves. And we've been doing it ever since. Ever since. Why? It's because we cannot assure ourselves of our value and worth on our own because we are created beings. We have to get somebody outside of us to approve us to acclaim us, to declare that we're worthy, that we're accepted, that we're, here's Romans' word, justified, that we're righteous. And we all do this then through various strategies on our own. And we can be very religious in your efforts at this. You can be extremely, fastidiously religious in trying to justify yourself. Some, and sometimes people do it through secular means, through non-religious ways. For instance, our world would say this, you can justify yourself if you're beautiful. Your beauty will justify you before others. Or some people say, I will justify myself by being wealthy, by making money. It will justify me because I will be wealthy. Or some people say, I will justify myself through my achievement, through my progress, through setting goals and accomplishing goals, through rising up in my career and accruing more influence and power and respect. This will justify me, we think. But the fact is that everyone is desperately trying and struggling to justify themselves. We are clamoring for righteousness. We are. And we fall short and we self-medicate with other things to try to dull the effect and the devastation of falling short of being justified. And the cycle repeats. 
But God has blown into that and done something marvelous. Here's the sad reality. When you try to justify yourself in any of those ways and fill in the blank with another hundred million different, different ways, all of our righteousness that we try to do, yours, mine, the Pope's, it all, right, is going to be blown away unless it's God's righteousness. Why? Well, listen, if you think money is going to justify you, what happens when you lose it? What happens when it's gone? What happens when a recession hits, when a market crashes, when an investment that you thought was certain suddenly doesn't pan out, when you got scammed and it's gone, and what you were justifying yourself is now gone. Or beauty, right? Just hang around long enough and watch that fade away, right? What happens when that is gone? Or achievement. Well, what happens when you can't do any more achievement? Or when you've accomplished all of your achievements? Or the world isn't giving you any more achievements? Or you're achieving things that nobody seems to care? It doesn't seem to matter anymore. Now what? You see, everyone's righteousness, all of it, mine, yours, everyone, our self-justification will be blown away unless it is the eternal righteousness that God has given, a divine justification. That's the good news. God justifies. He does it. To beautiful people and ugly people, to wealthy people and poor people, to people who achieve and don't achieve, to winners, to losers, here's what it is the empty hands of faith to receive what God has done. Now, when that takes over your life, when that takes over our life together as a congregation, as a community of faith, then then something powerful starts to take shape in us. You see? Now, imagine this. Imagine how powerful a testimony of God's grace and love and forgiveness we will have as a church when we can look each other in the eye without condemnation or comparison or self-justification because we know that we've been justified by God. Not our works or our beauty or our money or our achievement or our success or our power or our influence or anything else out there, but it's in here we stand accepted by God. And we look each other in the eye and we welcome each other on that ground. Imagine how powerful a testimony we would have of God and His grace and his mercy. Or think of this, when we can be honest in confession to one another and we can bear one another's burdens and we seek to outdo one another in showing honor because we've been justified by God, what is that? That's gospel doctrine, the news of the gospel translating into how we live. That's called gospel culture. How we interact, gospel culture. How we treat one another, gospel culture. Imagine this, being a church. You see, we, we need to make sure that we don't just have gospel doctrine in our heads. We must have that. We must show the gospel, yes. But we, must, we must teach the gospel, but we must do more. We must show the gospel in how we live and relate to one another. So, gospel doctrine matters, yes, because without gospel doctrine, we don't have any good news to share. <laughs> we don't. You take the gospel out of us, if it's just getting together a bunch of kind of mutual admiration society, kind of goody-two-shoe people, that's not good news. That's a rat race. That is an endless treadmill of defeat and discouragement and, and you're going to be just worn out. 
But listen, if we have gospel doctrine, we also at the same time need gospel culture because if you have gospel doctrine without gospel culture, then the gospel doctrine that we want to proclaim will be pointless because people won't be able to see it. Like, you're telling me about this stuff, but what does it look like? They don't understand it. They won't see it. So if we preach the good news, but if we treat each other with a look of aloofness or superiority or negative scrutiny or a gotcha mentality, which is what the world kind of lives in, right? That's what it is out there in the world. If we have that in our spirit, then we'll undermine the very message that we say we preach. So it's good for us to remember what the gospel is because it's what sets us free to live the gospel towards one another. You see, we'll never be able to achieve more and more of the fruit of gospel culture, which we do see evidence of here at Highlands Baptist Church. Praise God for that. But we want to keep seeing that ground fertile, the soil fertile to grow that culture even more and more. How do we have that grow here more and more? By us understanding that God is the one who has acted for us in our problem of sin and evil. He has justified us. We don't have to justify ourselves. And what this means then is that the more clearly we preach the gospel doctrine and the more beautifully that doctrine shows up in our culture as a church congregation, the more powerful we will be in bearing witness to Jesus and the mighty friend of sinners that he is. Jesus, a friend of sinners. So let's wrap this up. Okay, what is the gospel? It's news, not advice. What is this news about? God's righteousness to sinners. He justifies, you don't. Third, the gospel is God's power. It's God's power. And we'll be very brief here, but in verse 16 he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, which by the way, there is a general response towards this news of what God has done that is kind of makes people embarrassed and shameful and, and awkward and uncomfortable. It's not for that for Paul. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Notice there that Paul does not say that it is powerful. Nor does he say that it brings God's power. Okay? I was trying to think of an illustration, and I thought of Thor's hammer. I don't know if this works, but um, if you don't know Thor, um, well, this will make sense to you. But uh, Thor has this hammer, and he can raise it up, and he kind of calls power from the sky, and then he can, you know, throw it at his enemies. The gospel is not the, the, the hammer that is kind of channeling God's power. The gospel is God's power. This means that the good news of Jesus, what he's done in his life and his death, how he is, gives his righteousness, he justifies sinners through the empty hands of faith when it's received, when it's believed, it's the power of God in verbal form. So that means then when you believe it, when you hear it, when you understand it, when you grasp what it says and embrace its meaning, to the degree that you actually do embrace it and internalize this news so that it becomes the governing fabric of your life and you order your life around that news, you have God's power coursing through you. You do. Thor's got nothing on you. The gospel is the power of God. Well, what does it look like to experience that power? Well, there's all sorts of uh, places we could go through into the Bible to describe what that looks like. But for our purposes this morning, I want us just to understand that one way we see the gospel's power is that it changes It changes you by producing in you God's righteousness. Or think of it this way. God's power works in you in this way. It is the only thing that can deliver you from trying to justify yourself. So that means that God's righteousness now gets produced in you. It takes the place of your efforts of 
justifying yourself. You say, well, what do you mean? What, what, what are you talking about here, okay? Well, um, one critique of Christianity that I've heard is this. Well, you people just believe that you can kind of like live the way you want, say, God, forgive me, and you're all good. You know, and, and you guys live like hypocrites, and you kind of have this cheap, easy, you know, faith, forgiveness, like, and you just kind of live evil, and then you think you're okay because you go to church and you do something religious, and you say, oh, yeah, God, by the way, I feel bad, forgive me, and God just kind of, you know, comes in there in the last minute, easy button kind of life, and, and you're good. That is not Christianity, okay? So if that's what you understand to be Christianity, that is not Christianity, because being a Christian is primarily about being loved by God and having your relationship with God change you because God has done something. He has justified you. You say, well, does that mean that Christians don't have to live a certain way? Hang with me here, right? If you are loved and if you've experienced God's grace and peace, if he's justified you like he says he does, that will change you. It will from the inside out. So this means that you can never say that you have then, going back to the gold medals, right? If you say that you're a Christian, which means that you've put on God's gold medal, Jesus' gold medal of life. If you say you're a Christian and you say, I'm wearing God's gold medal, I'm justified, then what will happen is, you, you, that what, will, what will be resulting in your life is you'll discover that the righteous medal that you say you wear of Jesus will start producing in you God's righteousness. Does that make sense? That's the power of God. It changes you. When someone experiences God's love, and in spite of all the bad that they've done in their life, they, when they realize they stand justified before God, not because they've justified themselves, they can't, it's hopeless, but because God says, I justify you because of Jesus, then it will inevitably start changing you and your character and who you are and how you think and how you behave. And that's a slow process. It's incremental, and we, we stumble on that all the time. We'd like to think that the Christian life, I mean, this way, is kind of this straight kind of line of growth, Christianity. It's not, right? I mean, my line is like this. It's just kind of, right? I mean, it, that's what kind of how it happens, but the power of God is at work. How? Because when you're wearing the righteousness of Jesus, the medal of his accomplishments around your neck, it's going to produce in you God's righteousness. It will. That's God's power. Do you know God's power like that? This is why the Bible says, do you have the fruit of repentance, the fruit of faith, the fruit of belief? You see, anyone can call themselves a Christian, but if you really wear the gold medal of Jesus around your neck, if you receive this news about what God has done, then Jesus' righteousness that you wear now by faith will start producing within you God's righteousness in how you think and live and act. I'll have the music team come up and get ready to lead us in our final hymn of response. Friends, we've been looking through the sermon series of this big storyline of the Bible, Right? How has everything gone wrong? Why is there evil in the world? What's gone wrong? And then what is going to go right? And I talked about the Apollo 13 mission, right? So back there on April 13th in 1970, the Apollo 13 crew, along with the brightest minds of NASA, started to problem solve through the night for five days before they were splashed down on April 18th safely. It was a big problem. Friends, it's nothing compared to the problem of our evil. 
The story of the Bible is that our problem of sin and evil is so bad, you can't fix it. You can't. That's why the good news is not advice. We have something better than NASA. We have God. And I know this may seem cheesy, but being a Christian is, is when you repent and believe, it's not calling out to mission control in Houston. It's calling up to God and saying, God, I have a problem. Only you can fix it. The news of Jesus, what he's done, who he is, his righteousness, that is what I need. And you receive it with the empty hands of faith. And when that happens, your whole life changes. Who you are and how you think, how you behave, what you love, what you don't love, starts to fundamentally be different because the metal of Jesus' righteousness around your neck produces within you by God's power, because it is God's power, his righteousness. So the gospel is good news, not advice. Have you received it? The gospel is God's righteousness, not ours, not yours. Have you accepted it? And the gospel is God's power. Have you experienced it? I hope so. And I hope that more and more we get to show the gospel in our culture here at Highlands And I hope if you don't know Jesus and God this way that you would repent and believe and accept and receive what he has given you today by faith. Let's pray.